The International Monetary Fund is slashing its outlook for global growth. Top capitalists are sounding the alarm about an imminent recession. And the Federal Reserve is more determined than ever to purposefully drive the economy off a cliff. It is appearing more and more certain that the coming months will see a major economic crisis break out. How bad will it get and for whom? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are excited to have again Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining once again. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, the president, Jamie Dimon, says this is serious. U.S. is headed for a recession. IMF downgrades outlook for global economy in 2023. And then parenthetically, amid Ukraine war, I guess that's the blame. Here's another one. Is the U.S. economy in a recession and taking the world with it? Professor Wolf, when I was looking at the headlines, whether it's the popular media, the general media, or papers like the Financial Times, it's pretty clear that the entire capitalist establishment, certainly the media, are anticipating a recession. And then there's also a sense of like, of course, there has to be a recession because, of course, the Federal Reserve has to do what it's doing. It has to raise interest rates. It has to make borrowing more expensive. It has to slow the, what they always call the overheated labor market, where workers are apparently starting to make too much money, like as if that's the cause of inflation. Anyway, there's two choices in the world. One, inflation, in which case workers' wages are actually quite a bit lower than the prices that they have to pay when they go and buy that which they need to sustain life and the life of their families. Or they have to lose their jobs in order to tamp down so-called demand. In each and every instance, the workers are the ones who are going to endure the pain. And the reason I mention pain is that Jerome Powell, by the way, he's worth $55 million, so-called worth. He has a $55 million portfolio. He says pain is inevitable. I'm not quite sure how much pain he'll be suffering or his fellow members, the bankers in the Federal Reserve. But anyway, let's start. Is a recession coming? 
And if it is, why? First of all, this business of prediction. If you go to an amusement park and you encounter a fortune teller and you give the fortune teller a buck and the fortune teller reads your palm or the tea leaves or whatever the fortune teller does and tells you, for example, who you'll be sleeping with in two weeks, the appropriate response is for you to giggle. You're not going to suddenly get worried because you don't really want to sleep with that person in two weeks. Then you've misunderstood an amusement and taken it seriously. Nobody can predict the future. I can, you can, and nobody who's an economist can do that either. So when you hear a prediction, the best thing to do is to ask yourself, what is it that the predictor wants? Because the prediction is simply a disguised form of trying to get what he wants. So now let's take Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan. Here's what he wants. He wants lower interest rates. That's what is better for the bank. They want to be able to borrow government money very low a low interest rate and then relend it out to the rest of us at a higher rate and keep the difference. He wants lower interest rates. And what does he do? He predicts, as if he could, what's going to happen. A terrible depression, recession. It's serious, he says. Oh, sure. He knows. Turns out he knows not only that there will be a recession next year, but he knows how serious it's going to be. The man is, he shouldn't be a banker. He should be doing those fortunes in the amusement park. It's the reality of what he actually is doing. Here's what he wants to do. He wants to scare everybody. Terrible economic trouble coming, recession, unemployment, and therefore don't raise interest rates anymore. In fact, pivot, that's the word they like there, pivot, turn around and drop the interest rates just to avoid this terrible recession that's coming. By the way, could it be that a recession is coming? Absolutely. Not only could it be, most economists think that that's what's likely because the Federal Reserve keeps saying it's going to raise interest rates. And we all know in economics, we've studied it, when you raise interest rates, there's a good chance, no certainty, there are no certainties in economics, much as folks would like you to believe it, there's no certainty, but it's a general rule that if you raise interest rates, fewer people are going to be in a position to buy a home, fewer people are going to be able to afford a car, fewer people are going to be afford anything because they're going to be paying more for their outstanding credit card balance if they have one. Students will be squeezed at higher interest rates for the loans they need to get a college degree. In other words, you slow the economy down by making it harder for the people who borrow money to pay for that, by making the interest rate higher. And likewise for businesses, making it more expensive for them to borrow if they had any idea of borrowing to grow. So you're slowing the economy down. There will be lots of people laid off. And so the idea is that the Federal Reserve is going to do that and everybody has to suffer. That's the pain that Mr. Powell was talking about 
and I can answer your question, Brian, he will suffer no pain at all because raising interest rates hurts those who are either already in debt or those who need to go into debt now. And that debt is much bigger burden for middle income and poor people than it is for rich people who don't really care that much if the interest rate is a little higher or a little lower. That's what it means to be wealthy. So the Federal Reserve has chosen to deal with the inflation, the rising price problem, by moving to another problem, raising interest rates. Notice that we are being told we have a choice between inflation, which hurts us, or raising interest rates, which hurts us. And all that we are supposed to do is cheer for whichever one of these painful experiences we prefer. It's like walking down the street, having some terrible person jump out of the alley and say to you, I have a gun, I have a knife, you can choose which one I'm going to use to kill you. If you sit there agonizing over the choice, you don't understand what's happening to you because the obvious, intelligent, rational answer is I'm not going to be forced into a choice where both outcomes I lose. I don't accept this choice. You can do that. You can do that. We can say to the Federal Reserve, if you want to stop inflation, Here's what you do. Take a page from Richard Nixon, the president in 1971, who stopped the inflation then by declaring a wage price freeze. Any business that raised the price of anything it produced would be arrested and go to jail. Guess what? The inflation stopped on a dime. He didn't have to raise interest rates, it turns out. You're dealing with a Federal Reserve that doesn't want you to know about or think about or debate alternative ways to deal with an inflation. Here's another one. Stop using prices as a way to decide who gets what. Roosevelt, the president of the United States in the early 1940s, issued ration books that were distributed to people according to their family and their needs. And the way you bought a pound of coffee or a gallon of gas or a pound of meat was by giving the tickets in the ration book to the butcher or the grocer, and you didn't use money. There was no rising of the price because the thing you bought, you bought with one of these ration stamps, which had been given to you by the government. In other words, there are lots of ways to deal with an inflation Sticking us with rising interest rates is the one that the people who run this country want us to live with. It's not the only one that we have to. And last point, please remember what an inflation is. An inflation is when prices go up, period. That's all it is. When prices go up in general, we call it an inflation. Who raises prices in our country? Employers. The only people with the power to raise or lower or keep the price the same are the employers, the class of people who own and operate the businesses that produce the goods and services we all buy. Employees never set prices. They are forbidden. 
If you're an employee, you've never been called into a meeting and told, today you will be setting the prices of whatever it is we produce in this enterprise. You've never had that experience because you are excluded. Employers, and they alone, set prices. And employers are 1% of the people in, the, in America today. 1%. And the rest of us, the 99%, we pay the prices the 1% decide to charge us. If we have an inflation, it's because the 1% are deciding to raise prices because it's profitable for them to do so. They will proudly tell you, I'm in business to make a profit. The decisions I make are designed to improve my profits. One of the decisions I make, setting prices, is going to be done in order to make the most profit. Over the last two years, my best profit opportunity was to jack up my prices, and that's what I did. To allow that, is the most undemocratic economic act this country can do. 1% pursuing the profit for themselves are raising prices. And the rest of us are spectators watching the money fly out of our wallets. If you accept that, well, then you're in that same acceptance place as you are if you imagine that your only choice today is the one that the people running this society give us between laughing at us. You can have an inflation, which we impose on you, or you can have rising interest rates and all the pain that imposes on you. That's your choice. Isn't it wonderful to be in America where we have such a freedom of such a choice? Yes, we have variety. Yeah. We have variety. Richard, in 1964-65, around the time the U.S. was making the fateful decision to escalate in Vietnam, John F. Kennedy had been shot, killed in November 63. There's a lot of indications that he was hesitant and worried about expanding the war in Vietnam. It was always called the U.S. deployment. There were called advisors. But shortly after Kennedy was killed, there was the Gulf of Tonkin event, which turns out to be a, a completely fraudulent event, whereby the U.S. argued, the U.S. Navy and the U.S. government under Lyndon Johnson argued that a North Korean patrol boat had attacked a U.S. Navy destroyer. And in response, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was jammed through Congress. It was passed. Only two senators voted no, only two out of 100. It passed, and that allowed the U.S. to escalate. And the U.S. sent a half a million troops to Vietnam very shortly thereafter. In 1965, the inflation rate was 1.6%, I believe. In 1979, when Paul Volcker decided to, quote, curb or tame inflation rates, the inflation had gone up to 14.8%. I mean, that's huge. That means the purchasing power, if you're a person making $100 in 1965, you could buy $100 worth of products. You could buy $14 less with that same $100 by 1979, like just a little bit more than a decade. How important, this is one of my two final questions for you. How important 
was the military spending, which can be called waste spending in Vietnam. It was huge. It was huge. How important was that in terms of contributing to inflation? And after you finish that, I have one quick follow-up question for you. The simple answer to your question is that the war in Vietnam, which was excruciatingly expensive, remember, if you go in either direction, west or east from the United States, by the time you get to Vietnam, you are more than halfway around the world. You are moving the equipment needed for modern warfare, planes, guns, tanks, trucks, and all the rest of it. Many military bases used by the American military in Vietnam had first to be built by the United States. And to sustain half a million troops, you could imagine, that distance you have to move them, that distance you have to supply them. It was a vast program of government spending for war. Every time a country decides to go to war, if it's expensive, they immediately have a problem. How are you going to pay for an expensive war? There really are only two ways to do that. Number one, you can tax your people. Every American family could have been taxed a few thousand bucks to raise the money to fight the war. But if you think the opposition to the Vietnam War was strong, and it was, and it finally brought that war to an end, which it did, that was nothing compared to the opposition you would have had from the American people if they were told, not only are we going to risk the lives of your young men and women that we send over there, but we're going to snatch thousands of dollars out of your pocket to pay for it all. There would have been no war. It would have come to an end in a matter of weeks. And so what most governments do, afraid of their people's reaction to a tax, is they don't do it. Here's what they do. They borrow. That way they don't have to raise the tax. That way they can go to the mass of the people and say, hey, this war is like a freebie. You don't have to pay any more taxes at all. We're going to do this magical financial thing called borrowing. Well, who do they borrow from? Long story short, they borrow from banks and rich corporations who lend them money, who get in exchange an IOU from the U.S. Treasury. It's called a government security or a treasury security. And you know what the banks and corporations do who lend money to the government to fight the war in Vietnam with those treasury securities they get? They turn around, and all of this is legal, they turn around and sell that treasury to the Federal Reserve for nice, fresh money. So the corporations and the banks started with money, lent it to the government, got back the money from the Federal Reserve. And the government, meanwhile, had all this money that it could fight a war with without taxing. The problem is all of this ends up with a lot more money in the economy than there was before. And when you pump an economy full of money, you raise the possibility, not the necessity, doesn't have to happen, 
But the possibility is that money suddenly increased to fight the war starts looking to buy things, not war things, but the normal things of an economy. And then the prices go up. Why? Because the employers, knowing there's more money in the economy, see a profit opportunity by jacking up their prices. We could prevent them from doing that the way Mr. Nixon did, the way Mr. Nixon had to, in part because of the war. But that takes a courageous president to do that. Nixon, whatever else you may think of him, did it. The current crop of leaders, Republican and Democrat alike, are so completely bought out by the corporate and banking sectors that they don't even want us to remember our own history. They act as if only what the Federal Reserve does and tells us it's willing to consider is all that can be done. Shame on them, shame on us for believing it. And now you have a very similar story. This time, the government pumped a lot of money into the economy, at first not to pay for a war, but instead to pay for a, a way to save this economy from itself. We've had three crashes of capitalism in the first 22 years of this century. Dot-com in 2000, subprime mortgage in 2008, COVID-19 in 2020. This is an unstable system, and the only thing that has kept it going has been the Federal Reserve flooding the economy with money, this time to keep capitalism from collapsing rather than to keep Vietnam from becoming the communist country. It eventually did since U.S. lost that war. And so again, we see with the money being pumped in for a while, the money get pumped in the first 20 years of this century, it didn't go into buying goods and services, so we didn't have an inflation. You know where it went? Into the stock market. And there we did have an inflation. Stocks went up crazy in the first 20 years of this century, made billionaires out of hundreds of Americans. They loved it. They weren't going to fix anything. They loved where this inflation was because a tiny percentage of people own most of the stocks in this country. Only when the price of stocks had gotten so high that they were lunatic levels that everybody knew couldn't be sustained, did they finally decide to take all the money being pumped in and instead start going into buying goods and services. Wow, that led the employers to say, hey, now we can make a lot of profit by jacking up the prices of everything from milk to soup to nuts. And that's what they've been doing over the last 18 months. And we have leaders telling us, you got to choose between whether we fleece you with an inflation or whether we fleece you with rising interest rates. A working class that allows itself to be put in that position, especially when the previous 30 years have seen the American dream disappear, have seen the American middle class wonder what happened. That's an amazing situation, and we should not be surprised if the working class of this country finds people like Boebert and green and Trump attractive. They're desperate. 
We are desperate in an economy that is pumping us full of problems and solutions that make the problems worse. Richard, my final question is something I've been meaning to ask you. I wanted to get your thoughts on this phenomena because, you know, we live in a world economy, obviously a world economy dominated at this stage by capitalism. It's a globalized economy, meaning things can be produced in Bangladesh, T-shirts, for instance, and brought all the way across the many thousands of miles across oceans and then sold at, you know, very low prices in the United States. A shirt made in Bangladesh, for some reason, could cost a consumer $5 or $7. And even right now, I've just read news reports about Amazon and Target and some of the more, you know, lower priced places that are have excess amounts of inventory. And so they're they're now starting to begin sales, or at least they say they are. Maybe that's just a marketing trick. But here's my question. Inflation did come down after Paul Volcker raised interest rates to it was almost 20%. Maybe it was 20% by 1980, 81. There was a terrible contraction, economic contraction in the first years of the Reagan administration. Unemployment was at 10% by 1982. I mean, really a high human cost. And then there was this 30-year period, or, or actually almost a 40-year period where inflation seemed to be gone. It didn't, it didn't seem to be a recurring problem. And, and when you look at the financial writings from Marxists, from liberals, from conservatives, you name it, but inflation or stagflation was such a dominant theme in the 70s, and then it was kind of gone. It seemed to be gone for a long time. There was an occasional spike, but basically gone. At that same time in the 1980s, China, through its opening up reforms, allowed foreign direct investment into China, where U.S. and Western corporations set up shop in China. They closed down factories here. It wasn't just China. It was also Mexico and other places. But China is the biggest sort of single market. And the employment of people who had been living in the countryside, coming into the cities, working at very low wages, long hours, assembling products in China that were actually manufactured for export. They were manufactured to be sold abroad. And I'm wondering whether, from your perspective, whether the opening up of China, the creation of this access to a labor market, and not just a labor market, a seller's market too, in China, where one-fourth of the human race lives, and at low cost, whether or not that created for a period, a couple decade long period, sort of an artificially low inflation rate. And now that China has developed, is developing, and also as the US is decoupling or trying to decouple from the Chinese economy, whether the policy towards China and the opening up of China created a period that is a period that's now basically over. How important was China in this sort of 40-year stretch of price stability? Very important. The opening to China and to the rest of the world, but I would give it a different name. We called it globalization, or if you like, neoliberalism. It was the profit-driven decision of American corporations, but also Japanese and European and so on, to realize that China gave them a fantastic opportunity, like Mexico and many other countries, Bangladesh and Indonesia, and you could fill in the blank, 
Many of the poor countries of the world, desperate for economic growth, desperate to stop being poor, invited capitalist corporations from North America, Western Europe, and Japan to come there, to employ the workers there. And they offered them the incentive, everything will be done to help you settle here, you will be given every advantage, and here, here is a disciplined industrial labor force well-educated by global standards, and charging you one-quarter, one-eighth of the wages you now pay in the United States. American corporations, like their counterparts around the world, left the United States. Hasta la vista, they said. No patriotism held them back. They rushed over there, Mexico, Asia, Africa, Latin America, and above all, as you rightly say, China. And they did it for one reason. It was the most profitable thing to do. They did not raise their prices. They could have, but there was no reason or need to. By switching out of high-wage Americans and in favor of giving the jobs instead to very low-wage Chinese and other workers, they enhanced their profit many times over. The last 40 years have been the greatest peacetime run-up in the stock market we have ever had in our history. This was a wonderful opportunity. But you're right. The Chinese took advantage of this situation to fast grow their economy so that they're now a real challenge to the United States. And the time for making quick bucks by exploiting Chinese labor is slowly coming to an end. And that means that American corporations can't make the next crop of years of profit by moving to China. They've been there. They've done that. They now have to look elsewhere. And one of the places they're decided to make a stand to get their next few years of profits is by an inflation here in the United States. And if that means the lower half or two-thirds of the American people become as impoverished as the Chinese were for the last 300 years, so be it. These corporations are now more dependent on China than they are on the United States. General Motors sells more cars in China than it does here, and I could give you a thousand other examples. The world is changing. The empire that the United States built mostly in the 20th century is now over. And all of these experiences, inflation, rising interest rates, jobs we don't like, all of this is a part of adjusting to the fact that our U.S. empire is coming to an end. We are going to repeat the history of the British empire when it came to an end a century earlier. The new emerging empire, unless we work a deal with them, is the People's Republic of China. And we're right now at a moment when we seem to be deciding not to make a deal with China as the old empire and the new the way Britain and the United States made a deal when Britain was the old and America was the new. Instead of that, we want a confrontation. That's what Ukraine is about. That's what 
Huawei was about. That's what the new bill about subsidizing U.S. computer chips is about. And our future, literally our lives, are hanging in the balance. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out that book and all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.